Good morning. Well, it's 4th of July weekend, and I'm sure we got a lot of things planned, and uh, we have uh, the privilege of having my mom here with us. You guys welcome my mom. I've had her out because I'm going to confess a story she doesn't know about in my childhood this morning, <clears throat> and uh, it's, you're going to leave now? Nice. I'm going to make a statement, and I am going to tell a story about my, my uh, younger years. I want you to listen to this statement. We fight most for things that usually keep us captive. Let me say it differently. We most often are adamantly fighting for certain things in our life that destroy us or hold us captive. So when I was at junior high, we used to, well, growing up, we used to go to this trip that our church back then we grew up in, this, this uh, water skiing trip. It was at Kings River. Uh, and when you grow up in California, fireworks are very, it's, it's typical, you know, that it's the thing you're not supposed to do, but that makes it even more interesting and more alluring. So you don't, there's not, like here, one of the, the biggest surprises moving here is there are fireworks, I mean, it's like, not even fireworks, it's almost like bombs that you could buy at these stores, uh, and you could buy them year-round, that you would never see that. I mean, you'd see sometimes these little things popped up, but even that, there were like, uh, you couldn't set them off. So what's funny is you could buy fireworks, but you're not supposed to set them off, you'd, it's illegal. But at Kings River, it was out in the agricultural kind of region of San Joaquin Valley, up in in the kind of the central California. And so I, that year, had saved a little bit of money and I didn't, I mean, I got a couple little small rockets, but I was in junior high, man, and I'm gonna like, I'm gonna get a mega rocket, the mother of all rockets. So I do, I buy this really cool rocket. And we had done this at Kings River over the years. And so I, it was in the evening and it's the hotel faces this irrigation river that we ski on. And there's an island in the middle. And the island, honestly, might be as long as our building, but probably only maybe 50, 60 feet wide. So it's, it's pretty narrow, but that's kind of what created the loop going around and boats would go by and you sat at the hotel beach and watching people come in and out. So it's an evening and uh, the guy that's volunteering, one of the parents for the junior high, his name's Andy. So if you're watching, Andy, I'm gonna expose you right now. Um, he was the responsible adult. Notice I just did air quotes. Uh, because I said, Andy, I have this rocket. He goes, oh, we gotta set that thing off. <laughs> so we found this pipe, and sure enough, I had conservatively, because I was very conservative, not, um, I, I had it pointed straight up, and I thought, you know, just a little bit of an angle to get away from the hotel, and, you know, and it's all farmland out there, and thinking we're not gonna, you know, get anything. Andy's like, no way, lean that thing like that, shoot it way out there. And I'm looking at it, really? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So we light it, and we're just waiting, anticipating for the glory that's going to go on. Because everybody has small fireworks. We have this mother rocket. Pretty much it does this, it just goes right into the island. And then all you hear is, I thought, hmm, this is not going to be good. Sure enough, a flame about yay high that if you know about California, it's dry season and things are dry 
instantly it felt it was the mother of it was like the Chicago fire on this island people are running out of the hotel room shouting getting in their boats uh, because I mean this is a massive fire all down the center of this island people are shouting I don't know who did this we're gonna catch them and Andy and I have these trash cans. We're going, yeah, we're going to catch those idiots who did this. And we're just... <laughs> Nothing burned down, just the island. Uh, we saved the crops and the hotel. Isn't it funny we're committed to things that do the most destruction? Herein lies the picture of the prophets. The prophets are coming to a nation and a people that are m- much like us often fighting for independence spiritually. But that's the very thing that will destroy them. We're so much like these Old Testament pictures of the prophets and the nation of Israel. It's easy for us to look at Israel and think how wayward and unfaithful they were, but how similar we are, that we fight for independence in many things in our lives. And we're going to celebrate that this weekend, but spiritually speaking... God wants your dependence. And so the prophets are powerful stories of a God that continues to pursue. And so we've been in this 10 series. We're in the last part uh, of our Old Testament piece. Um, Just a couple pictures about prophets. We said last week, prophets are God's spokesperson commissioned by God to deliver His word not yet revealed. Now, what I mean by that is, there wasn't a Bible. And so the the messages that God was was declaring through these prophets uh, was new. And and they wanted to listen to these prophets. Now, God also chose kings throughout the the, the reign of, of Israel. And we see good kings and bad kings. He also chose judges. These were kind of the forms and priests These were the vehicles that God used to speak to the nation of Israel. Prophets had this significant role because they were often coming with, hey, news, like Mike was saying, pointing to Jesus, but immediately pointing to stop this. Don't do this. I'm warning you. You're fighting for an independence that's only going to destroy you. Now, that's Old Testament. We know that when Christ comes, uh, the law isn't done away, but Jesus fulfills the law. That means Jesus is the last sacrifice ever to be given. He is the last high priest. He is the high priest. He is the judge. He is the prophet. He is all those things. He is the, the, the king. You hear all these terms in the New Testament. So what do we do with prophets? So let me give you the picture of New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets are God's spokesperson commissioned to deliver his word already revealed. What does that mean? It's our Bible. Often you'll hear, uh, maybe in modern day in some denominations, that I, I have a prophet gift. And sometimes that could get unnerving because what does that mean? Does that mean that God is directly telling this person what is going to come? My, my understanding of Scripture, I'll show you a passage in a moment, is that those are no longer a part of the story that God's writing in modern day because he's already revealed the fullness of his story and his truth. 
So typically what happens is in the scripture that talks about a gift of prophecy, it more is around pastors and teachers that are gifted to teach. So how many of you have heard Billy Graham in your lifetime teach? Okay, so you would attest. Now, Billy, from a homiletic, that means a teaching perspective, most would say wasn't a very good teacher, wasn't a good preacher. It's really true, his, his, the way he lined things up and all that. But nobody in the room would say it wasn't with great power and like God-ordained power. This gives you a picture of the gift of prophecy. God using someone to communicate that moves people. Okay? So I think this is important for us distinction. Now, in 1 Corinthians, it says in 13, Paul's addressing a church in the New Testament now, after Jesus has died and resurrected. They're, they're pursuing the big gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and healing. And they're making these the big deal. If you don't, you got to have these. If you don't have these, something's not right. And so Paul writes this about what's important, and he says love. If you read the text... Uh, in Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthian church, you get very clearly that love is the great gift. And so he says, love never fails. He says, but where there are prophecies, they will what? They will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Now, just a quick theological kind of commentary on this piece. There are some denominations that would say this is not going to fully be fulfilled until Jesus returns the second time. That means they still, excuse me, exist. The gifts are still present. I would say a larger portion of people say that they are diminishing and not as needed. Why? Because we have the scriptures. We have the story. And so this is important for you to understand, and my posture would be, it doesn't have to be yours, not necessarily our churches, but that the, the gifts could be present in, I think, places around our world, but largely in part, we don't see people with the gift of prophecy saying, God told me this, this is what's going to happen. Um, I have this great gift of healing. Now, does God heal and does God give people the tongue of languages? I think he does. But we're seeing less and less of that. And so some people have asked me that question. Why isn't that as present? This is part of where I would probably camp. Now, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit can't do that at any time. You can't put God in a box, and he can. But we don't see it as often. Scripture tends to be what we're communicating. Now, I told you the chart last week, if you were to read the Bible and you wanted just to take the books out uh, that gave you more of a chronological, his, uh, a typical Western process to looking at history. It started here, it started, when, and you work through timeline. You would read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings. You would read 1st and 2nd Chronicles as just a review to the same history line. Lamentations would just be attached in there somewhere. But then Ezra and Nehemiah, this would be really largely your historical survey of the Old Testament. But we don't end there, right? We have more books in the Old Testament. So you would have then all these other books that are stories within the history line. This is important for you to note. So you see Job in Genesis, Leviticus is in Exodus. Uh, and so they're separate books, but they're just adding to this historical line. That leaves us with then 
what we call the prophets, both major and minor prophets. And so our goal this, this, uh, e- uh, this morning is really to cover the minor prophets. It's 12. Now, we went over five of the major prophets last week, and those five aren't because they're better. It's because they're larger books. Now we have the rest of the 12, which are called minor prophets, and so those are all highlighted pink. And so this is a great chart. I think we'll post this. This will be up um, just for your kind of use. And it's, it's a great thing to refer to, especially as you read through the Bible. It, it helps you understand kind of where things lie and, and they fall. One more point, just a factoid. And I know I'm giving you a lot of like kind of high level information, but I think it's important. I've had people ask me, why is the Catholic Bible different than what we call a Protestant Bible? So let me give you a couple thoughts. First, there are two sources specifically mostly for your Old Testament, and that is the Masoretic Hebrew text and the Septuagint. Septuagint found much later in history, more modern history. So largely, the Masoretic text is what we've used mostly for most of the information for how your Old Testament is uh, formed. In 1546, when uh, the Council of Trent formed, they had found the Septuagint um, sometime before that. And there was a Catholic, basically, gathering that decided that there are other books that were not allowed in the Masoretic text, and they weren't in there. Now, in a Protestant viewpoint, it would be that they're not in there because they're never quoted from from any of the other books of the Bible. These books that I'm going to list in the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha are never quoted Therefore, they, they were left out. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have some historical value. They just weren't put in as canon to the Bible. So Deuterocanon and Apocrypha books are Judith, Tobit, Baruch, Sirach, the Ecclesiasticus, Wisdom of Psalm. You see all these. Those are not bad books. They're just not included in the Protestant canon. The Catholic Church decided uh, in the Council of Trent in 1546, Bobby gave me that information, uh, that... They, it was decided from that group to put it in. So you see that there's a difference, and that would be the difference. Does that make sense? Two texts that way. All right. So you have a pink card in front of you. Um, guys, we're going with pink for one more week, and then you can get out of that. Although our own Joey wears a pink shirt to work, which is amazing. Just his confidence there is just is un, unfounded. You're not laughing at that, so I'm going to keep moving. Uh, Uh, Why don't you write a five on your card, and then would you put 12 boxes? Already defeating for some of you, crud. I I don't think I could keep 12 boxes straight. Maybe not. Um, 12 boxes, because you're going to have 12 minor prophets. Now, I'm going to go through these quick. Uh, I first apologize for that, because we don't have enough time to go through this, but I want to hopefully whet your appetite to read these prophets. They are amazing they are uh, powerful insights to you. Did you hear what I just said? You, you can read this about how it's looking at the Israelites, but I want to tell you they're powerful insights to you and I, our behavior. So would you write up there minor prophets, and they are the mouthpiece of God. The word prophet uh, comes from a root word in the Hebrew that means to gush forth like a well, like a spring. And it was because they were gushing forth the, the words that God was telling them, and they were unknown to them. 
It wasn't like they had a book to go read. So here's our first one, Hosea. Uh, These are not necessarily in the order they're in Scripture, but I'm just going to go through these. Hosea. Hosea has, we decided not to give Mike this story for the kids' sake because Hosea, how many know the story of Hosea? Right. He gets asked to marry a slave of a lady of the night. How's that for code? You'll have to explain that one, all right? A lady of the night because he wants Israel to know that this is how I love you, meaning he is going to pull her out of other places, other relationships, and love her back and forgive her. In fact, in the text it says that, it says, the the Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love their raisin cakes. Again, another fun thing. I don't know why the raisin cakes, but they're in there. God's saying this is a beautiful story, a very powerful story, in pointing to what? Our unfaithfulness. And God wanted the nation of Israel, and I think even this morning, God wants you and I to know how unfaithful we are to him. And yet we have a God that pursues us out of that unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness in a marriage has to be one of the deepest, most uh, destructive sins, isn't it? It rips apart, not just physically or sexually, it's, it's a soul tearing. And that idea of what God might be going through with his creation as it is unfaithful to him over and over and over. And we have a God that pursues us. This lays the foundation for Hosea. Now Hosea uh, is large, remember, two kingdoms, northern kingdom and Judah. He is focused mostly uh, at this point uh, with the northern kingdom. Amos. Amos does not come from the line of prophets. He's actually a shepherd. And can we just think for a moment, if God woke you up tomorrow morning really early and said, I have a job for you. It's your calling for your life. Could you imagine being a prophet? Okay, we're not just saying like, this is, hey, go down the street and tell a few people. These prophets are telling cities and nations. And they're not like good news people. It's not like health and wealth gospel, right? It's like, hey, just come back to God and he's so good. It's, I'm giving a warning. He is going to bring locusts. He's going to bring destruction. You better repent. This is, this is like a bummer person. Anybody been at a concert or a big event and you have the prophet that's standing up holding a sign? You're all going to hell, right? Anybody seen those? Anybody? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of those. I don't think anywhere in the scripture it tells us that we're to be doing it that way for evangelism. They're supposed to be through the vehicle of love. But you would sense these minor and major prophets are really announcing, hey, listen, everybody, God told me this. Sorry, he woke me up the other day. Here it comes. So Amos is now going to talk about the injustice that the Israelites are a part of in the northern kingdom. Let's go on. Micah. Micah, another great passage. Um, 
Micah confronts the leaders of Israel and Judah regarding their injustice. Again, the way they're treating people. And so he confronts the leaders and says he has an expectation for them to love others. Listen to what Micah 6.8 says. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The whole story of Micah is about, I have an expectation of how you're to live. You're my, you're my creation, you're my children, and you're to live and operate this way. He confronts the leaders. Joel, we just heard the story. I don't think he had to eat locusts, but we did it this morning. And so, a very powerful picture, right? And no one's passed out. Good, we're all good. You're good in the back, buddy? Your thumbs up. More to come. I think there's a whole bag of those for you to take home. Fourth of July salad. Uh, Joel's going to call for repentance, as, as Mike just shared with us this morning. And again, it's to the northern kingdom. We go on to Obadiah. Obadiah has maybe even a worse job that he's got to go through. And that is, he's asked to go to a neighboring nation. Not even Israel. Not even God-fearing nation of Israel. He's going to an evil nation next to them and saying, God is going... Here's his warning to you for what you just did to Jerusalem. That had to be really fun. That would be like me or God telling you, saying, get on a plane and I want you to go to Syria. And I want you to go to the ISIS camp and I want you to warn them on what God's told you, what God's going to do to them. Fun job, right? Obadiah is all about humility. Jonah Great story. We chose not to use that one this morning because it's probably the most popular. Jonah. Jonah, there's a city in Nineveh, or a city called Nineveh, and it's really in modern-day Syria. It was outside of the nation of Israel. But still, uh, as God continues to display, even back then, not only his love for the Jew and the 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 Israelites, but also those who weren't. This is this great expression. And so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. And Jonah doesn't want to go. Why? He doesn't like the Ninevites. Are there people in our world today that produce terror, that are bringing evil, that you just kind of say, you know what? They're going to get what they deserve. I don't, if they could come to Jesus, I could not worship with them. I felt like this at Angola, going down death row. Remember Damien and I walking down death row and meeting gentleman after gentleman and then knowing later on what they did and thinking, could I sit in a church service with them? Where is my forgiveness and grace and mercy? And is God's love and forgiveness good for everyone? Am I okay with that? Jonah's, it's not okay with that. So Jonah runs the opposite direction, goes to the city of Joppa, gets on a boat. Remember, they throw him off. He's swallowed by a whale. That whole story... Later he'll go to Nineveh, they will repent. And what does he do? He sulks. You ever done that? Well, let, me, let me rephrase it. Have you ever pouted and were bummed out at God because he actually did something and you really didn't want him to do that? Anyone? I've done that. Like, oh. This is Jonah. Nahum. Nahum's short story again in the Bible, Obadiah, I think is one chapter, uh, but Nahum is talking about being doomed. 
the reality of what's coming and the, the nature of uh, the judgment to Nineveh. And so basically, Nineveh over time does repent but comes back where Nahum's got to go. It says you're doomed because you really haven't completed that repentance. You're back where you started. And Nineveh is doomed. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is pleading with God. His whole thing is about the injustice and violence that's happening to the southern kingdom in Judah. And what's so interesting here is that God's going to say, he's going to be surprised because God's saying, I'm going to bring even worse calamity. I'm going to bring even something harder for the Israelites. Even more brutal. I, I don't know how, I mean, just at our cam, we had a cam Thursday night at Titletown, and we're, we're trying to bring people who don't know God. And one of the questions was the injustice of why do bad things happen to good people? And we, we discuss this reality of, we make a lot of assumptions that, A, we know who good people are. Do you? I don't know the hearts of anybody in this room. Only God knows that. And then, do I assume I know what bad things are? What are bad things? Wouldn't we agree that our children, when they're young, these kids on this stage, can't really decide what's good and bad for them at this point? That's why you're a parent. Because you're in this season of life to help shape them that cookies all day, every meal, are what? They're bad, but for a kid, all of, well, maybe as an adult, you still think they're good. See, we still make that mistake, spiritually speaking, and when we think about God in the, the whole spectrum of time, our perspective of what we know is good and bad is so small. God's going to bring even harsher adversity. Habakkuk pleads with God not to do that. It says, even in this, it says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? This is Habakkuk asking, Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than I? Habakkuk's asking a great question. We're not as bad as the other group. Powerful, powerful book. Zephaniah. Zephaniah is, is really, he's, he's, he's going to talk about, um, he's going to judge Israel and the surrounding nations, and, but he's going to restore them. He's going to talk about the judgment that's going to come upon Israel, but I'm going to restore you. He gives this glimmer of hope, a remnant, saying, I'm going to leave something and I'm going to restore it. We're starting to see the pointing to the cross. You see Haggai, it says build with an exclamation point because they were called to build the temple and they stop. Haggai goes to them and says, get back at that. Now we know here this morning that when Jesus comes, he says he's going to, he tore the curtain there are, it's not about a temple anymore. Back then it was about a temple and that represented a house of God. But we know this morning, this campus is not a church. Biblically, from a biblical worldview, this campus, this brick and mortar are not a church. You are. Our church will never be measured by the brick and mortar and how nice the rooms are or how holy rooms are. It says that you are the bricks. You are the pieces being put together and you are the church. 
Friends, that's why we keep saying you've got to get out of your chair and be the church. If you reduce church to this building and this campus, we're in trouble. We're just a religious gathering that makes us feel good. Haggai's saying, get back at building. And could I say that this morning? Get back at building the church. And that's you and your neighbor. That's the church. Zechariah. Zechariah has these powerful visions of, of God coming. And he is, he is going to talk about God returning and what God will do, but he's calling them to return and the restoration that God will do. And then lastly, we have Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament before the 400-year intertestamental silence. How many of you have had seasons of your life where you feel like you can't hear God? You feel like his presence is not there. Anyone with me? Anyone else feel the same way? I've felt that. I feel these seasons. Think of 400 years. Think of your children and their children and their children and their children. Generations of not sensing God's presence. Sometimes people ask, where, what time would you like to live in, in history and what time wouldn't you like to live? I don't think I would choose the intertestamental silence time at all. But Malachi is going to talk more about robbery. You've robbed God. You've been about fighting for your independence and you've lost perspective and you're living disconnected. It's destroying you. It's a fire in your soul. It's, it's separating us. I'm calling you towards restoration. So draw a line down the page on the right and two passages, really two books that I would tell you to read of the Minor Prophets are Amos and Malachi. I'm going to draw two points just very quickly. Amos 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on a wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? What's he saying? All of you want God to come back, but do you realize when God returns in these settings, what's he exposing? How far, dark, lost, broken, unfaithful we really are. Friends, you know when Jesus comes, all of us will be exposed. Isaiah says even the secret sins that we think are silent and no one sees will be exposed. Talk about fearful. He'll know the sins of the heart and the mind, the things we think about, the things we do. He says, I hate, listen to what he's saying here, because this group is not a bad group on the surface. These are religious people. I hate, God says, I despise your religious festivals. They're having festivals. That's a good thing. They're gathering together. I hate your assemblies. They are stench to me. They stink. You gather together to worship me? I can't stand it. This is what God's saying to the nation of Israel. You bring me offerings. They're even bringing offerings. Grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, that means you're bringing good stuff. I have no regard for them. You're even singing all the good songs, but they're noise to me. 
I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What can we learn from what Amos is saying to the nation of Israel that I actually think we should hear this morning? God looks for your heart, not religious activity. You can look like a church because you're doing all the right things. You could be singing all good songs. People could be giving gifts. We could be a debt-free church. We could be doing great programs. But we could have hearts that are still independent from God and lost. You see, about being a Christian isn't being religious. It's about having a relationship. Following God isn't getting it all right. It's understanding that he makes it all right. And I think we missed this this morning, and I think even in, as we gather this morning, we can't, get, we can't grow into some sort of rote tradition where we've lost the reality that God is measuring this morning my heart. He's measuring your heart. And I'm not accountable for your heart. You are. God is looking for your heart this morning. Malachi chapter 1. So the last book of the Bible says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will not accept, I will accept no offering from your hands. Friends, they're doing all the right things. Isn't it today we feel like we just got to do all the right things for God? We keep doing it for God, and he keeps saying, I don't want it for me. I'm calling your heart to be with me, dependent on me. My name will be great among the nations for where the sun rises and it sets. Every place, incense and pure offerings. He's talking about a, there will be a day. There will be a day where those offerings are accepted, where those offerings become ones that are honorable. What makes, let me ask you a question this morning. What makes your offering this morning pure? It's not you. It's not me. It's not Bobby. It's Jesus. The only thing that makes our gift to God this morning that we want to follow you is Jesus. That's it. Therefore, we come with hearts repentant and broken. Surely a day is coming, Malachi 4, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant evildoer will be like a stubble. God will set them on fire, he says. But if you revere my name, in verse 2, the sun of righteousness will rise with its healing in its rays. Friends, what's in your heart? What can we learn this morning? It says it in here, I'm going to send you a prophet Elijah. And we get the picture that he is pointing to Jesus, but it's going to be through John the Baptist that's going to be thought of as like a prophet like Elijah. But we recognize this morning God's fighting for your heart and dependence on him. Not only does religious activity mean nothing in the eyes of God, but he's fighting he is he's ripping you out of the beds of things that you keep pursuing to fight for independence and pulling you back saying, come on. That's so 
bad for you, that's going to destroy you, that's a fire that's going to burn you up, come on. And you have a God that's loving you back and wanting your heart. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? What are you fighting for? We're going to go into our response time, and I just want you to think about this, because we have a weekend. We get to celebrate freedom in our country, and I love our country. It's full of problems, no doubt, but I love our freedom. But do you see how that is in exact opposition to a faith story, to our story in God that's saying, I'm not calling you to be independent. I'm calling you to be dependent so you can have freedom. Friends, this morning, what are you fighting for? What independence in your life? Are you fighting for privacy so you can do what you want? Are you, are you fighting for your own provision so that you have security in the future? Are you fighting for your own protection? I don't know what you're fighting for this morning. Are you fighting for a political party? Thinking that's going to fix the things in our in our country. Friends, no political system will ever change a heart. No president will ever change a heart. It is a God that sends a gift and says, you don't have to get this all right. You just need to accept what I've already done. As we go to communion this morning, ask yourself that question. Father, we're grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful that you don't allow us to live in independence very long. And God, that you will send whatever necessary to break us, to remind us of our unfaithfulness, to remind us of our brokenness. God, will you reveal in your Holy Spirit this morning what we need to let go of and become dependent on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.